So Matthew 18 from verse 1. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He called a little child and had him stand among them. And he said, I tell you the truth, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes a little child like this in my name welcomes me. But if anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a large millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world because of the things that cause people to sin. Such things must come, but woe to the man through whom they come. If your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands or two feet and be thrown into eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into the fire of hell. See that you do not look down on one of these little ones. For I tell you that their angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. What do you think? If a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, will he not leave the ninety-nine on the hills and go to look for the one that wandered off? And if he finds it, I tell you the truth, he is happier about that one sheep than about the 99 that did not wander off. In the same way, your father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should be lost. Thanks, Sarah. Good morning, everybody. Um, it's great to see you this morning, and um, again, welcome. If you're not used to coming to church, if you're here maybe for the first time or just visiting, um, it's really good to have you here. You're very welcome with us. As we do every Sunday, we're going to be um, hearing from God in his word, so please do keep Matthew chapter 18 open as we look at it together, and uh, I'll be leading us through uh, these verses. Now, I want to begin by asking you to relive the moments that you uh, walked into church this morning. Maybe you walked in with minutes to spare and you had a lovely leisurely pace as you walked in. They're the people who were sitting at the front uh, down here. Um, Or maybe you sprinted through the doors with screaming children behind you, in which case maybe reliving that moment is not the thing you want to do right now. But I want you to remember when you sat down, uh, you looked at those around you in the pews. I want to ask you, what did you see? What did you see? What do you see now as you look around at the people in this building? Now, the well-known Christian author C.S. Lewis once said that we never meet an ordinary person. 
And the reason for that is that all of us are on our way to eternity. Have a listen to how he puts it on the screen. He says, It is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses. To remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship, or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long, we are, in some degree, helping each other to one or other of these destinations. It is in the light of these overwhelming possibilities, it is with the awe and circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all our dealings with one another, all friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. There are no ordinary people. I wonder if you get the the point that he's making there. I wonder if you see things in the way that he sees them. The people sitting around you today are no ordinary people. We're heading, all of us, to eternity, either to glory with Jesus or to judgment from Jesus. And every day we have the ability to help each other towards one of those two destinations. Now this brings a real seriousness to our lives, doesn't it, if we're not yet Christians this morning. If heaven and hell are real, if eternity is real, if God is there, then it matters how we respond to his son, the Lord Jesus. And it also brings a seriousness to the Christian life too, because you and I are involved in preparing people for eternity. So what will it mean to do that well? How should we view one another rightly? And how can we help each other to make it to the end? That's what we'll be thinking about in our verses today. We're going to begin with the command Jesus gives in verse 10. In these verses, Jesus is talking to his disciples, those who have believed in him, and here is his first command to his disciples there in verse 10. Don't look down on God's precious people. Have a look at verse 10 again with me, verse 10. See that you do not look down on one of these little ones. For I tell you that their angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. Now, we'll come back to that intriguing statement um, about angels in a moment, but just look at the command Jesus gives to his disciples, first of all. See that you do not look down on one of these little ones. Now, we need to see that this verse carries straight on from verses 1 to 9. There's no title in the original Greek. There's no paragraph break. This is Jesus continuing his teaching. That's why we had verses 1 to 9 read um, earlier. And you might notice that Jesus picks up that language that we saw last week, if you were here, when he talks about the little ones in verse 10. Now, as Danny mentioned earlier, um, the question that Jesus is answering in this chapter is the question in verse 1. Let's read it again, um, verse 1. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? That's the question that Jesus is answering in these verses. Who is the greatest And as we've already seen in his answer, he he brought a little child in amongst the disciples and used that little child as an illustration of his point about who enters the kingdom of heaven. Verse 3, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So in other words, greatness in God's eyes is not measured by our achievements or our status or our income. It is measured by whether we will humble ourselves before Jesus and become like little children, empty-handed before him. 
Christians are those who've said to God, I have nothing to offer to save myself. None of my achievements can earn my place with you. We have willingly become little, gone down in the eyes of the world, down in humility, down on the path that Jesus himself walked as he went to his death to save us. And as believers have done that, um, we have simultaneously, remarkably become great in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus became a nobody himself, dying a death on the cross for us so that we might become somebodies in the kingdom of heaven. So this is the group that Jesus has in mind as we get to verse 10, the little ones. He's saying to disciples, don't look down on one of these little ones, any of these little ones who are those who belong to me. And the fact that Jesus gives us this warning here shows us that it will be a very real temptation in a Christian community. Christians will be tempted to look down on other Christians. That's the danger. Why does that happen? Why would we do this? Well, it often stems, I think, from forgetting what we've seen in verses 1 to 9. It stems from the fact that we don't want to be like little children. I don't know about you, but last week when we heard um, about humbling ourselves like little children, I, find, I found part of me fighting against that idea. I wonder if you were the same. We don't want to accept our status as humble, dependent nobodies. We don't want to go down in humility, do we? Instead, we want to go up in pride. And if we think we're big, then of course we'll look down on those who we think are small. Do you see that how we view other believers actually says a lot about how we view ourselves? Do we think we're somebody's? who deserve a place in the kingdom? Do we think that we have earned our way? Do we think we're better than others? If we do, then that wretched sin of pride and status anxiety lives on in our hearts. And there's more metaphorical cutting off that we need to do with God's help. And if we find ourselves looking down on other Christians, bigging ourselves up, tearing others down, then we need to believe the second half of verse 10. Do you see, this is the reason Jesus gives why we should not look down on other disciples of Jesus. Have a look again at verse 10. See that you do not look down on one of these little ones. For I tell you that their angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. So here is a reason why we shouldn't look down on other little ones. And it's something to do with angels in heaven. Shall we move on now to verse 12? Now, now the question I've been wrestling with um, this week, or two questions really that I've been wrestling with, um, they sound quite basic, but they've been really challenging. What does this mean, and why is it here? And those are good questions to ask wherever you are in the Bible. Um, What does this mean, and why is it here? Um, I think it's particularly hard here, isn't it? What is Jesus saying about angels And why is this the reason for not looking down on other disciples? You see the questions. Surely there are loads of good reasons that Jesus could have given here for why we shouldn't look down on one another. He could have talked about our status as children of God. He could have said that we are brothers and sisters of the Lord Jesus. He could have reminded us that we're saved by grace, not by works. And so why would we look down on others? But instead he goes for angels. So let's try and work out why. Firstly, what does this mean? Well, this is a verse um, that has often been used to support the idea of guardian angels. This is the idea that every believer has a personal angel in heaven who guards them and protects them um, here on earth. 
an angel who might, for example, stand at the end of our bed each night watching over us. And we can see where this interpretation comes from, can't we, in verse 10, with the language of their angels. But a couple of things lead me away from that interpretation. First is where the angels are in verse 10. Not on earth, but in heaven, aren't they? Seeing the face of the Father in heaven. And the second reason that I don't think that's uh, what this verse is saying is because I don't think we see that idea anywhere else in in the Bible. We'd really be building that theology on, on one verse. We do see nations with angels in the Old Testament. We see churches who have angels in the book of Revelation. But the idea of individual Christians, each with their individual angel, I don't think has support in the Scriptures. More likely in my mind here is that Jesus is talking much more generally He's talking about their angels, not in the sense that each Christian has a personal angel, but that the whole church, all the people of God, are represented by their angels in heaven. The language of angels seeing the face of the Father suggests, I think, some kind of representation before God. We're represented by the angels in heaven if we're a believer. We're protected and we're served by God's angels. Just listen to how Hebrews uh, chapter 1 verse 14 puts it. Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? So these heavenly somebodies, these angelic beings who are always seeing the face of our Father in heaven, they exist to serve earthly nobodies like us. They're ministering for the good of God's people. And so an implication of verse 10 for the disciples is this. Do you realize that the little ones you are looking down on are being watched by an army of angels in heaven? God's little ones on earth have God's great ones in heaven on their side. It changes the way we view each other, doesn't it? Maybe it changes the way we think about each other as we talk over coffee. Who are we to look down on those that God calls precious? But I think verse 10 packs an even weightier punch when we look at how Jesus has talked about angels so far in the book of Matthew. Um, It's interesting just looking back at the references to angels. And there's one that I think is particularly relevant to us back in chapter 13. So if you could turn back with me to chapter 13 in the Bible, just a couple of pages back, and uh, verse 36. Matthew 13, verse 36. Now, we don't have loads of time uh, to go into the context um, of these verses, but Jesus is explaining a parable to his disciples. And the parable, as you can see from the heading, is the parable of the weeds in the field. Basically, in this story, there's a, a field. There are good crops that grow up in the field. They represent the people in God's kingdom. But then Satan comes along and sows weeds in the fields. People who reject Jesus, but who live among the people of God. So it's a parable that's explaining what's going on in our world. Christians living alongside non-Christians, side by side. And then we come to Jesus' explanation in these verses. So have a look at verse 40 and see how he focuses our minds here on the future. And in particular, what angels will do in the future. Have a look at verse 40. As the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man, that's Jesus, will send out his angels and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. They will throw them into the fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. 
Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. So here's the question. What, what will angels do at the end of the age? When this world reaches its end, when Jesus returns, what will the angels do? Have a look at verse 41 again. There we see that the Son of Man will send his angels into the field, into the world, to gather people for judgment. And do you see what will be judged in verse 41? It is everything that causes sin and all who do evil. Now, the reason this is relevant to our passage in Matthew 18 is because Jesus is using the same language here that we saw earlier in Matthew chapter 18. I wonder if you noticed it if you were here last week. That phrase, everything that causes sin. And if you remember, that's the the stumbling block word in the original uh, language. The angels will gather for judgment everything and everyone that has caused other people to stumble and sin. Everyone who has placed stumbling blocks in the way of other people's salvation. So that's where our world is heading. It's heading to the judgment day. So turn back with me to chapter 18 with that in mind. Chapter 18 and back to verse 10. How does this help us? Well, I think it has a very serious warning to verse 10. It's a warning similar to the one that we had back in verse 6. If we persist in the attitude of verse 10, if we look down on other disciples, then we will be causing them to stumble and sin because of our pride. Jesus says that the only requirement to enter the kingdom is humbling ourselves before him. But when we look down on other people, other Christians, we're denying that truth, aren't we? We're putting up a barrier for entry. We're placing a stumbling block in somebody's way. We're telling them that actually success or works or status really do matter for the kingdom, and that's why we're looking down on you. It's a denial of the gospel of grace. And we need to hear that warning. Don't look down on others because their angels are in heaven. And at the end of the age, those angels will come to save God's little ones, his precious ones, and to judge those who have caused others to sin. So as we saw last week, the sin of pride can lead yourself and it can lead others on the path to hell. Therefore, cut it out. Don't look down on God's precious people, people who are watched and protected by God's heavenly army of angels. That's the first command of Jesus in these verses. Don't look down on God's precious people. Now, the second thing we're going to see in these verses is is much more positive and involves an active pursuit from Christian believers. Don't give up on God's precious people. That's the second thing we'll see in these verses. If the attitude of verse 10 is something to run away from, don't look down on others, then the attitude of the remaining verses is something to actively pursue. So in other words, it's not enough just to not look down on other Christians. There's more to it that Jesus wants from us here. He wants us to actively pursue, actively care, actively love, treasure, value other believers. He wants every Christian believer to understand that they have a responsibility towards other Christian believers. So let's read together from verse 12. What do you think? If a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, will he not leave the 99 on the hills and go to look for the one that wandered off? 
And if he finds it, I tell you the truth, he is happier about that one sheep than about the 99 that did not wander off. In the same way, your Father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should be lost. Now, if you've had any exposure to Christianity in the past, and I'd guess that you've maybe heard the parable of the lost sheep. We've got a fair few children's Bibles in our house, and pretty much all of them talk about this parable. We do have children, uh, just to clarify, that's why we have children's (laughs) Bibles. It's a Christian classic, isn't it? The parable of the lost sheep, much loved in Sunday schools all across the world. But let's not be too hasty, because you might know that there are two retellings of this parable in the Gospels. One of them is here, and the other one is in Luke chapter 15, which is perhaps the more famous of the two. And Matthew's account is not simply a copy and paste job from Luke's Gospel. The parable has a different focus, and it has a different response. It seems as though Jesus might have told the same story in two different contexts to two different groups with two different aims. So I want to give you a better title for this parable in Matthew. Feel free to change the heading in your Bible if you've got a pen, um, and if you're not using the church Bibles, uh, if you've got your own. Um, Here's a better title for this parable. Not the parable of the lost sheep, but the parable of the wandering sheep who is not yet lost. It's not very catchy, is it? But more accurate. The parable of the wandering sheep who is not yet lost. In Luke 15, the parable account of this story, there are a hundred sheep, one gets lost, the shepherd goes and finds it, and there Jesus is talking about those who don't yet know Jesus, who aren't yet in the kingdom, and he's saying that he is the one who will go after those people and gladly welcome them into his kingdom if they would repent and believe in him. It's about lost people, people outside the kingdom coming in. But here the purpose in Matthew is different, and the one sheep is different. The sheep is a believer, someone who is already in the kingdom and who is wandering away from the truth. Now we see this from the context. The context is the community of believers, isn't it? Talking to disciples about how they treat other disciples. And we also see it from the language in verse 14, the language again of of little ones. Your father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should be lost. He's talking about Christians. He's talking about believers. So with that in mind, what do we learn about God from this parable? Well, surely the big point is that God is committed to preserving and pursuing his precious people. Every one of his little ones is valuable to him. Every Christian we know is precious to our Father, and he is not willing that any of them should be lost. I remember a time with my brother, who's a sheep farmer, when he received a call from someone in the place where he he kept his sheep. And the person on the other end of the the line said, "Uh, Max, uh, I've found one of your sheep stranded near the river. It's in danger. You need to come now. Sheep had wandered from the field, as sheep do, and was heading for danger, heading for death. Without a moment's thought, my brother and I jumped into his truck. The two of us went and rescued the sheep from the river. Or actually, he rescued it while I watched on. And the point is, if that is how my brother treats a sheep that he was rearing for meat, how much more does our Father in heaven care about his precious people? These are the people he has set his love upon. These are the people Christ has shed his blood for. These are the people the Spirit has put his seal upon. They are his own, his beloved, his flock. And he is not willing that any of them should perish, and so he pursues them. 
However far they've wandered from him, however entangled they are in their sin, God loves them and he goes after them. And when he finds them, verse 13, he is happier about that one sheep than about the 99 that did not wander off. Now, it struck me reading this, just how different this is to often what we see in our world when people get things wrong. Just think about people in our society who perhaps say the wrong thing or do the wrong thing or fail morally in some way. The common response, I think, is a search-and-destroy mission. Bring them down. There's often no thought of repentance or forgiveness or restoration. Search-and-destroy. Bring them down as quickly as possible. But do you see how God's agenda is so different to that? Not search and destroy, but search and rescue. And that is remarkable because the wandering sheep has wandered from God himself. And therefore, they've sinned against God. Now, when we backslide in the Christian life, which we all do, think of the words that we sing in one of the hymns that we sing at church, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. All of us can sing those words, can't we? And when we wander from God, we get entangled in all sorts of sin. We get entangled in unbelief, in pride, in self-confidence, in anger. You know, we heard from Tori explain her story about what that was like for her when she was wandering away from God. And in that time, we're refusing to repent and to turn back to Jesus, aren't we? We're not innocent when we wander from God. We are morally responsible But God's attitude is not to cut us off without a second chance. He pursues us, and he forgives us, and he pursues us, and he forgives us, and he pursues us, and he forgives us again and again and again. When a little one turns back to God in their heart and repents of their sin and humbles himself before Jesus, God rejoices He doesn't punish us again for our disobedience. That punishment has already been laid on the back of the Lord Jesus. He doesn't make us grovel or work our way back to him. He's happy. Happier about that one sheep than about the 99 who did not wander away. I imagine that there are some of us here this morning who are very aware of our wandering hearts Maybe you're indulging in some sin that nobody else knows about. Maybe you're deeply discouraged with God or with his people. Maybe you've begun to close your ears to God's word. Or maybe you know people like that and you're trying desperately to love them. If so, we need to know what our father is like, don't we? He is like a loving and persistent shepherd who rejoices over his returning sheep. And so if you've wandered, you can return to him today, however far you've strayed. And if we know people who are wandering, then we can keep on pursuing them because we can be sure that our Father in heaven loves them and treasures them and cares for them more than we ever could. There are so many practical implications that we could think about from this parable. Next week, for example, we're going to see how God's care is reflected by his people as we call out sin in one another and practice church discipline. That's one way that God pursues his people. That might be surprising next week. We're going to see in the final sermon in this series that disciples will need to forgive one another because it's not just God who has been sinned against in a Christian community, but will have sinned against one another too. And so forgiveness is vital for church life. 
But for now, I just want to pause and reflect on this parable in, in two ways. Firstly, this parable reminds us of the importance of Christian care. This parable reminds us of the importance of Christian care. Now, it seems to me that the idea of care is a more prominent idea now compared to perhaps 10 years ago. Employers want to do a better job of caring for their employees. That's a good thing. GPs and other services want to do a better job of caring for their patients, particularly with regard to mental and emotional health. That's a good thing. Churches want to do a better job of caring for one another in church. And I think this parable helps us to understand what Christian care is all about. What does it mean to care for a a Christian brother or sister? You see, we as Christians have a unique perspective on life, don't we? Because we believe in the realities of heaven and hell. We believe that Jesus is coming at the end with his angels to gather his people. And that means, above all, that Christian care is about the spiritual good of our brothers and sisters in Christ. We're the only group of people in the world who can offer what we might call soul care. We can point people to the only hope for eternity, the Lord Jesus and his death on the cross. Only believers can share God's heart and pursue God's agenda of not wanting other little ones to be lost. I've been reflecting on my own life recently and the care that I've tried to offer other Christians, and this passage has helped me to do that. And I've been asking myself, am I expressing my father's concern for his people? Am I seeking to say the hard thing to brothers and sisters who I know who need to hear it? Am I willing to hear those things from other people as they warn me and correct me? Am I willing to do all I can to turn the heart of a Christian disciple away from sin and towards Jesus. That, do you see, that is Christian care, because it's care in light of eternity. Now, of course, with that will come all sorts of practical care, getting alongside people, being silent, weeping with those who weep. But the question is, do we also share a desire as a church to care as God cares and pursue as God pursues and to get involved in this really hard but really vital work of caring for people's souls as we speak the word of God to one another? If you know a brother or sister who is wandering away, maybe you can bring them to mind right now. What are you doing to pursue them? What are you doing to care for them as God cares for them? This is one area where this parable encourages us to think about. The second way um, that this should shape our church is by reminding us that we need one another. We need one another. I remember a friend of mine um, saying um, a while back when he was struggling spiritually that the thing he was most grateful for during that time was hearing the gospel week in, week out at church of knowing that he could turn up at church with all the feelings that he brought with him, all the challenges that he faced, and he knew that he would hear the word of God again that would remind him of what was true, that would shape his heart, that would correct his wandering. If it weren't for the regular hearing of God's word, I would have wandered away, I'm sure, many years ago. God uses means to pursue his sheep. He uses Sundays. He uses growth groups. He uses WhatsApp messages. He uses letters. He uses one-to-one conversations to keep us going. He shepherds us through his church as faithful brothers and sisters get alongside us and keep us going. Do you see the gift that church is to those who are tempted to wander away? He puts us here 
with people who we are responsible for and accountable to and committed to for the spiritual good of one another. That's one of the reasons why church membership is so important. It's why we're, we're doing Startup this afternoon, uh, which is our course for those who'd like to become members of our church. Membership allows us to commit to one another formally and to know who are we looking out for, who are we praying for, who are we pursuing, and to know the people who are doing the same for us. Brothers and sisters, I need you to help me when I'm tempted to wander away. I need you to correct me in my sin, to warn me when I'm heading for the cliff. We need one another. It's not just a luxury. This is a a lifeline, isn't it? We need one another to pursue like our Father pursues us, to care like our Father cares, and to love like our Father loves. To do that when it's hard, to keep doing it when it costs us, because we know that it costs Jesus his own life to save these precious little ones in our church family. God knows when his people are wandering away. God cares when his people are wandering away. God rejoices when his people are brought back. The question is, do we? Do we reflect his heart? Jesus wants his people not to look down on other precious little children, but instead to actively look out for God's precious little children. And so let me return to that question that I asked at the beginning. As you look around at Christians in this church, I wonder what you see. Do you see as God sees precious people, protected people, guarded by the angels in heaven? And as you watch Christian brothers and sisters wandering away, however small that might be, hardening themselves to the truth of God's words, maybe distancing themselves from the community of God's people, what do you do? What will you do? Will you pursue them? Will you care for them? Whatever it takes as we reflect the heart of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me read the final verses uh, from the book of James, which I think are are helpful to reflect on, um, and then I'll lead us in prayer. So final verses from James, which is down at the bottom of your, your handout. My brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring that person back, remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. Our Heavenly Father, thank you that you are not willing that any of your little ones should be lost. Thank you that your heart is one of overwhelming compassion and grace. Thank you that your disposition is search and rescue rather than search and destroy. And thank you that all who come to Jesus, whether for the first time or after wandering away, Thank you that all of us receive a welcome that we do not deserve. Father, please help us in our church to be a caring community of people. We know that we need each other. We know that our hearts are prone to wander away from you, even as perhaps we put on a good front to others. And so please help us in the small ways and in the big ways to pursue one another's spiritual good in light of eternity as we speak and as we pray. Father, we ask for your help to do this. We ask for your wisdom, for strength, 
for perseverance and for our lives to be characterized by Christ-like love. And we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.